HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hot Dish Productions, an award-winning modern culinary production company. Learn more at Hot Dish Productions. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Amanda Cohen from New York's Dirt Candy. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Amanda about battling for recognition as a female chef, how vegetables are a lot of fun, and we'll hear Amanda's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia is well known for saying, I think every woman should have a blowtorch. She said it on camera, at cooking demonstrations, and she often added, don't you? It always got a laugh, especially as Julia fired up her blowtorch like a weapon. Such a strong tool to scorch some sugar, but Julia was after more than just the drama. She reveled in its subversion. This gag was more than Julia's made-for-television ham. It was also an overt political statement. Think about it. She's wielding a very manly tool, most often used in construction, by men. 
she's subverting a dangerous device to do women's work in her home kitchen. Today, it's commonplace to have a small blowtorch in professional kitchens to scorch the sugar on creme brulee, and you can do it at home without having to have Julia's strong arms. But when Julia fired up her blowtorch for the first time, she was sending a powerful, subliminal message. Women can do the same things as men, especially if they set their minds to it, and don't let conventions or naysayers stand in their way. This is just one of the many ways Julia brilliantly revolutionized cooking and helped women chefs break through the glass ceiling. Someone who is running with this blowtorch is Chef Amanda Cohen. She's the James Beard-nominated chef and owner of Dirt Candy, an award-winning vegetable-focused restaurant on New York City's Lower East Side. She's also a co-founder of the pandemic-formed Independent Restaurant Coalition. You can check out our conversation about the IRC with fellow veggie-focused chef Camilla Marquez in episode 109. As Mackenzie Chung-Fegan wrote in a recent profile for Resi, Amanda Cohen's ahead of us all, and we'd be wise to pay attention. She was the first vegetarian chef to compete on Iron Chef America, and her Dirt Candy, a cookbook, is the first graphic novel cookbook to be published in North America, now in its eighth printing. Dirt Candy, considered one of the 10 restaurants changing America now, has been a pioneer in the vegetable-forward movement. Amanda opened Dirt Candy's original eight-seat location in 2008, which became the first vegetarian restaurant in 17 years to receive two stars from the New York Times. It has been recognized by Michelin five years in a row and garnered many awards and accolades, including being named the absolute best restaurant on the Lower East Side by New York Magazine and selected by Wine Enthusiast as one of the 100 best wine restaurants in America. In 2015, when Dirt Candy moved to its current larger location, It was the first New York City restaurant to eliminate tipping and share profits with its employees, some of whom you might hear in the background. It's also one of the very few to stick with this model. Amanda joins us today to talk about battling sexism in the food world, why vegetables are so much fun, and why changing the way restaurants are run is the right thing to do. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we're excited you could join us. So <laughs> I, I let Julia set the stage for women breaking barriers, but I wanted to ask you the, the, the frank question of just, just how sexist is the restaurant industry still? It's still pretty sexist. Uh, you know, we definitely don't have equity with men yet. Uh, certainly not in restaurants and certainly not in what I actually think is what's really holding us back, which is in the media. Uh, it's still really hard to get coverage in the media. And we're still not getting as many as awards or recognitions or stars as uh, a male-led restaurant. And that is, it's really sort of, that's the number one thing I think that holds most women back for two reasons. One, if you're a younger woman and you're, you know, looking at what your future is, you don't see people, uh, you don't, who look like you, uh, you know, at the top echelons in the restaurant world. And so why would you work so hard? You're like, well, I'm never going to get there. Uh, And then also, you know, without the media coverage, you don't actually get the awards or uh, more stars. And without more stars and without more awards, you don't get more media recognition. And you also don't get the investors. And that's a really, really big problem uh, for 
women and minorities in the food world. Without sort of a big cash flow into your restaurant, you're never going to... Um, you're never going to be able to compete on the same stage as male-led restaurants. You're always going to be at such a disadvantage. And I was really struck by something, even looking at your media coverage and two reviews that I think have been helpful to your business in the New York Times. But both of them, at the same time they were praising you, I feel like they were also sort of infantilizing you. They Both of them had, by to- two totally separate writers, this is easy to look up if you want to, um, both using child references to describe what you're doing. And did you pick up on that? And so in a way, did you end up celebrating these reviews or did they also kind of make you cringe? Um, I think at the time I celebrated, but looking back and sort of rereading it through uh, the 2021 lens, uh, it it does make me feel a bit uncomfortable. And I'm always going to have two problems. Well, I shouldn't, but I'll, for certainly the near future, I I will have two problems in the press. One is I'm a female chef. um, And so that's really hard to be taken. That makes it incredibly hard for me to be taken seriously. And then the other thing that I do is I cook with vegetables, which is not something that the media has taken very seriously for many, many years. Um, You know, most vegetables are looked at as side dishes in restaurants. I know know it's changing some and, you know, we're we're starting to see more and more uh, vegetable-centric dishes in restaurants. But by and large, they're still side dishes. And uh, that's sort of how it's treated in the press. I don't well, cook serious food. I don't, I don't, you know, butcher a cow every day in my restaurant. It's not serious. Well, and it's also the difference to where I wanted to mention about the difference of vegetarian and vegan food is often relegated to these are dietary choices rather than maybe cuisine, where your approach, is, as I understand it, is, is more cuisine driven, just happens to be vegetable focused. Yeah, exactly. I actually really just happen to love vegetables uh, and I want to celebrate it. It's how I like to eat. Uh, It has nothing to do with my diet or my political views or what I think about the environment. I mean, it's all I'm glad that it's all good on that front. (laughs) (laughs) That's not where you started, though. No, not at all. You know, and I used to say to people sort of uh, in, in our tagline, certainly at the beginning when we opened up to get people to understand what we were trying to do was I don't care what you ate for breakfast. I don't care what you ate for lunch. All I care is what you're about to eat for dinner. And what you eat tomorrow is none of my business. I just want you to enjoy this plate of vegetables tonight. <laughs> well, I, I want to, I'll come back to vegetables and eating vegetables a, a little bit later in the show. But I, I wanted to stick with this idea of these barriers and to get your, because you've been quite outspoken and quite eloquently outspoken about the barriers and and the, one of the barriers being attitude. I think that that's great to hear you mention. Well, great. It's not great that it exists, but it's interesting theme that every single female chef restaurateur who has you know sort of similar profile to you, a chef who owns or co-owns their restaurant, who's a woman, has said and answered the question with that barrier to capital as one of the key things. Although I don't think either of them is tied it as directly to media. And I was curious if you could elaborate on. You know, given that you have been covered in the media and certain star female chefs have gotten attention, where you feel those barriers are, where the media coverage is still insufficient? Well, I mean, the, there are certainly uh, 
female chefs who have gotten uh, investors and, and run big restaurants. But at the moment, they're still the exception to the rule. Um, and that's why we can, you know, name the handful of them, but we're not like, oh, but there's so many more. Let me like go on with a hundred names. Um, what happens is without the media coverage, why would an investor invest in me? Like, I just look at me. Um, and granted, I do get a lot of coverage, but they'd be like, but how is this person going to get any, like, how, or how am I going to get seats, people into the seats of the restaurant? No, I need to take somebody who's going to have a name who's going to be able to pull in that publicity, pull in the guests. And so every night I know that I'm going to get a return on my investment because the restaurant's going to be busy. Why would I take a chance on a female chef? She's not, you know, maybe she'll get an article once every couple of years and a review every once in a while, but that's not enough to sustain my business. If I want to make sure as much as you can as an investor that my restaurant is going to succeed, I'd better put my money on the male chef because the woman chef that's really, um, you know, you're, you're, you're really just sort of like taking a lot of chances. So are you sort of saying it's chicken and egg that if you have a societal bias already toward male chefs being preferred or worthy of the attention, they get the coverage and then by getting the coverage, they get the money and then it's reinforcing. Is that kind yeah, of what it's, you're saying? It's a never ending circle. It just and repeats and, itself over and over again. And what are the way, what are your ideas to break it? Um, Other than banning, <laughs> are you in favor of quotas or what, I, what do you think? Are actually, I am. I think the media should have quotas. I, and I think that it, it, it shouldn't be looked at as this huge hardship. Um, you know, for every male chef that you cover, you cover a female chef. For every female chef you cover, you, call, you cover a BIPOC chef. For every bike pop chef you cover you cover some uh, somebody else I, I don't know we can keep finding things but so that you know there really is equal representation in in the media that's how people discover who you are and you know that's how you get people into your restaurant so yeah i actually think a quota would be the best thing possible uh for for women to be able to you know keep breaking the glass ceiling well, I was going to say that it sounds like you're not necessarily advocating uh, like congressional law as much as media responsibility. And I remember, and I'm curious your point of view on on this to the extent that you want to comment on it, when Bon Appetit made its big change, and I'm not just talking about lately, a long time ago, when it was the largest Cirque food magazine servicing, yes, probably housewives or home cooks, let's say predominantly female, to kind of pivot to GQ bro culture. Which, you know, I was always told, oh, that was for, you know, advertising reasons and this. But I was always like, what a weird pivot to go 180 from the largest Cirque publication to this other side. It just seemed so incongruous, which, you know, wow, look, it's kind of been proven that that was a bad idea. But I mean, is that the kind of thing that you're also like looking at with complete bafflement? Yeah, ex yes, exactly. Um, it's like we're, we're saying that what is interesting to women has no value. And we're also saying that women have no value. But, and, but you can't, like, if I say that, it sounds crazy, right? And so everybody would be like, no, that's not true. Of course women have value, but that's how we treat them. And, and so that's what we have to change. We have to assume that what they're doing has just as much value as what the men are doing. And 
we have to search it out. This is one of the big problems too. In general, women open restaurants that don't have as much financial backing, which also means they probably aren't going to be able to have as much representation in the media because they can't afford a big PR company. And right now, the food world runs on PR. Uh, I personally think that a lot of journalists are really lazy and they don't look outside the PR. And they've started to. They're doing a lot better. But, you know, if you just read the the press memo that you have on your desk, you're only going to be reading about male chefs. And you're not actually stepping outside of your comfort zone and searching for some really, really good chefs out there um, that maybe, you know, don't have as much... Uh, they're not as known but if you search them out you can actually discover them and make them known and their cuisine their food their cooking is just as good as the male chef and you have to do this over and over again until it's very clear that what women are cooking is just as good and has as much value as what the men are cooking and you can it's like you have to think about it every single time you write an article did I, am I mentioning women enough? Am I, you know, is this too like male centric? Is this too white centric? Is it, you know, am I, how am I, how am I writing about this so that it is really representative of the food I'm talking about? Well, and I would add in defense of all the female journalists in the example we were talking about who work at and did work at Bon Appetit, it, it has to do with the top management too, because a journalist can pitch stories till they're blue in the face. If the editor doesn't think they're worthy, they're not going to go. And it, it's beyond just, it's cultural, right? And that overall shift of perspective of, you know, it's different if it comes from, as you're suggesting, if it comes from the top to say, we are going to cover as many female chefs as male go, that, 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 that's a substantial change. Yeah, exactly. No, and, and I agree. But when you're just a writer or a freelancer, you don't have as much power. And so it's very hard to say something. And that is something... Uh, that is something that I think happened over the summer. There sort of was a, another restaurant uh, reckoning, partially because of, you know, I think what happened at Bon Appetit, partially because of what happened in other publications, partially because of the Black Lives Movement. But it sort of did become this ongoing conversation of how do we sort of change the dynamic that we have had set up for years. How do we start covering people who we haven't covered before? And, and I certainly know, you know, when this was happening, I had, maybe not this time, but around the, uh, the Me Too movement with then, there was a lot of female journalists who were like, you know what? I was told not to cover this female chef that because she wasn't going to get as many hits. And I've actually thought she was really interesting and I fought for her, but ultimately I lost and I wish I had fought harder and I totally get it. You can't win. Um, if the top doesn't believe in it. Uh, but there are people who are now saying, I am going to fight. And that's what we need. Well, I think I think that's great insight. And um, I also I don't want to, uh, before we go to break, I want to ask you one more thing, because you've obviously also been at the forefront and speaking out when not getting the proper credit for that, of running a more equitable restaurant pre-pandemic. And now having gone through the pandemic and, and it being so much more visible to diners who are at least paying attention of how broken the restaurant model is and how it is in need of serious reform, both in terms of how employees are treated and the ability of restaurant owners to run them efficiently and profitably and fairly. I, I wanted to ask you the question from a slightly different point of view. 
Um, Because I think it's been talked about a lot about what's needed, as I just mentioned, like fair wages, healthcare, a change in the minimum wage uh, rules. But how can diners, who often, particularly the higher end restaurant, maybe the more oblivious they are to who's providing their food, how can diners really think about helping restaurants be more equitable places? all about the money. It's where they spend their money. If you if you as a diner really believe that restaurants should be more equitable, then you cannot go to a restaurant that you know that isn't. Uh, or you certainly can't go back there. If you've gone and then you ask some questions and you're like, oh, this, this isn't, you know, really where this, this place doesn't share the same values as I do. The way to make this happen is to support the restaurants that are doing this, that are doing the work so that the other restaurants are like, oh, that place is so successful. Maybe I should change how I run my kitchen and, and my front of house because whatever they're doing is pulling in guests and whatever I'm doing is pushing them away. And so as a diner, that's your responsibility. Your money counts. If everybody comes to my restaurant and doesn't go to the one around the corner, that one around the corner is really going to you know, be looking at me going, oh, she's doing something right. And I'm clearly doing something wrong. So maybe I do have to change how I I have to change how I pay my staff or what benefits I offer them. I'm struck by that that's so connected to the media, right? Because ultimately, especially on a busy night or if a restaurant is getting a lot of attention of the place to try and certainly in, you know, cities with heavy restaurant culture that's hopefully about to roar back, you know, people are drawn to like, where's the place you got to go? But if there's not a countenance of like, well, you know, that place might have great food, but actually everyone's miserable who works there, then you know, that has to be drawn out, right? It's not, it's not necessarily easy to find out at, as no, a diner. It's not, but I, and I think that, you know, people have to make a decision like, wow, is that really delicious piece of fried chicken worth it, worth my money, or is actually it more worth it to go support this place? And I mean, I know what the decision would be, and I know it's hard to give up your favorite food sometimes, <laughs> but, um, that's how change happens. And that's exactly what the media has to do too. You know, almost every publication wrote articles about workers this year. You know, this was the year of the worker. Um, we called them certainly in the States, restaurant workers and delivery drivers. We called them essential. Uh, we celebrated them. Um, there were stories about, you know, how, what the restaurant needed to do to change and what, you know, what could be done and, and, horrifying stories that had happened in kitchens, you know, people have been called out for their abusive practices. And if the media keeps covering those kinds of restaurants and doesn't actually focus on the restaurants that are, again, trying to uh, make a change, then we've lost the battle. And do you think that, um, I, as I mentioned, you've been involved with the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which I so admire what they uh, did during the pandemic and what they've accomplished in a very short time, which is so, uh, which hopefully will go down in history as a, as a watershed moment. Um, do you think one of the key priorities really needs to be getting rid of archaic minimum wage laws that apply to servers? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think uh, the tipping system is just abhorrent. It's sexist. It's racist. It's misogynistic. It is every S word that you can think of. Um, (laughs) There are so many abuses tied up in it. And the fact that, and it's, 
the fact that minimum wage, the federal minimum wage in the States is $2.13 is ridiculous. The fact that we think that $15 is a minimum wage is enough for anybody to live on is ridiculous. We need to start paying our workers more and we need to start paying them like professionals. If the restaurant is having a really bad day, you know, like my kitchen's slow, somebody didn't show up, we're all burning the food, we're sending it out. It's not the server's fault and we shouldn't base their, the, the, the customers shouldn't base their tips on that, but they do. They shouldn't base their tips on, you know, whether a, your server is pretty or not. This person is there to do a job. They're there to, a, yes, serve you, um, but they're not there to be servile to you. And we have to start paying them what they're worth and have give them a stable salary every single week. Here, here. Okay, we're going to come right back with more from Chef Amanda Cohen and we're going to change the topic from these serious issues a little bit more to talk about why vegetables are so much fun to cook and eat, as Amanda is a huge proponent of fun with vegetables. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Hot Dish Productions, an award-winning modern culinary production company specializing in creative digital video, photography, and podcast production. From concept through post-production, Hot Dish creates and produces compelling food stories that ignite the chef in all. Hot Dish Productions has deep connections to award-winning and celebrity chefs and over 20 years experience. Their team has won both a James Beard Award and an IACP award for their work in food media. Hot Dish Productions delivers the highest quality product at a fair value. Let them help tell your culinary story today. Explore their work and learn more at hotdishproductions.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Amanda Cohen from New York's Dirt Candy about her passion for vegetable-focused eating and why not that's not the same as being a vegetarian or a vegan. So, Amanda, how do you make vegetables so much fun at Dirt Candy? And why do you think it's taken us so long to appreciate how good vegetables can taste? Well, I think nobody really cared about vegetables for a really long time. They, they sort of had very little value in the food world. Uh, they're not a luxury ingredient. Uh, they're just always sort of there. And certainly as we were, um, you know, our mothers, I'm sure some people have very, you know, uh, good cooks as mothers, but by and large, you know, I, I think our mothers and or whoever was cooking for you, they didn't have a, a really good reference for cooking vegetables. It was sort of like, you know, boil them a lot or put them in the oven and roast them a lot or mash them. Like there, there wasn't a, you know, a, a vegetable encyclopedia with amazing things to do with vegetables. And that is because certainly in the, in the States, you know, after uh, World War II and after the depression, meat became the center of the plate. It was, you know, you were successful if you could have meat every night and vegetables were just, you know, there to look sort of healthy, <laughs> but they weren't ever promoted. 
as you know something to eat. There's not a there's not a big vegetable lobby in Washington D.C. except for the potato <laughs> lobby. They're very powerful, and which is funny because potatoes are the most eaten vegetable of the United States. Well, and I'm struck by, I, I will admit on air that I, I was a very, well, I was deemed a picky eater as a child. I'd like to think that I was a, one of these super tasters or whatever they called, but I, I was definitely not diagnosed. And one thing I definitely did not enjoy eating, I had like five vegetables that I ate and I wouldn't eat tomatoes. Um, and now my mom, who's probably listening, is always like amazed when I put a vegetable in my mouth. And part of it is when I became an adult and I lived in Italy and I was eating things, I was like, this is what a vegetable is supposed to taste like. And I think, you know, I was raised in the Midwest, the 1970s. I don't know where the food was grown, but it was trucked from somewhere and it was sold based on, you know, how it looked on a shelf. And it was limited, too. I certainly didn't know what sushi was or things like that. And so it's like that's the transformation. And now that there's more emphasis, I feel from producers on growing vegetables for taste. We had uh, Farmer Lee Jones on a couple uh, episodes ago. And it's like, you're like, wow, if I knew they tasted like this. or you, So where when was your like aha or transformative moment in terms of that vegetables could be really delicious and insophisticated food? Um, well, when I was opening Little Dirt Candy, okay, so I, I moved to a bigger space. So I'm going to call this Little Dirt Candy which was my original restaurant. It only had uh, 18 seats. I now have a huge restaurant at 44 seats. Uh, and I call that big candy. So little dirt candy when I was opening it. Uh, you know, I knew it was going to be a vegetarian restaurant. I had been cooking in that world for many, many years. And, and it was where I was most comfortable. I had cooked at more like omnivore restaurants, uh, but I, I felt more comfortable in the vegetarian world. And, and that's where I sort of knew I could shine. But, you know, I sort of, I really, I, I was sort of looking around and I was like, well, okay, what, what are we going to base this restaurant? Cause I don't want to just do like a vegetarian restaurant, you know, that's sort of like pan cuisines, uh, a little bit of everything. And I was like, you know, there's like, I swear like hundreds of steak restaurants in New York city and hundreds of like fish like restaurants, you know, and like, look at all these like fried chicken places. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh my goodness, there is not a single restaurant dedicated to vegetables. And it's like the, the story of my life flashed in front of my eyes, except it was all about vegetables. Like I was in the supermarket and the vegetables were running by me. And I was like, this is actually ridiculous. Um, and I was like, oh, this is going to make me, this is the big idea. This is the one. It's going to make me a million dollars. I will celebrate <laughs> vegetables and there's so much I can do with them. Not a millionaire yet. <laughs> Well, you maybe you were just like 20 years ahead of your time because right. I feel like, right, it's like the plant-based moment um, is upon us, which, um, you know, I think is is ultimately, particularly when you look in the ethical and um, uh, climate, environmental parts of it, you know, becoming more and more clear how important that is. But I think tying it to, you're, you're not having to give up taste and looking at the dishes that you can do, I think also transforms the potential of it being plant-based as not just dull. Right. Well, one of the things that we sort of, the, in the, in the back of my head, when I was opening it, I was like, you know, I'm not saying no to meat. I'm saying yes to vegetables. And it sort of changed how I, I really thought about it. I was, you know, I was like, it's not, I'm not being denied something. I'm actually opening the doors to so many more possibilities. 
Yeah, on that note, I wanted to ask you about the Lekka burger. And I was reading something about it as like a 900-year-old recipe, which I assume is not yours, behind the creation. And so could, tell us more about that, because it, it obviously fits into what we were just talking about. Um, I could be 900 years old. You know, vegetables keep you very young. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I had this really fascinating opportunity about three four years ago. Um, it was for a project for NYU and uh, a bunch of chefs were paired up with a bunch of different food historians um, or people who were doing sort of really fascinating things with food. And I happened to luck into uh, being paired up with this Chinese food scholar who like, was studying uh, recipes from the Song Dynasty, so 900 years old. Uh, 1100 years old and it was you know we were cooking in the kitchen and I mean this Rowan was so brilliant um but you know we were cooking from recipes that were like dark but translate but they'd be like dark high mountain water running green and he'd be like okay so this is a charred scallion <laughs> recipe what we're gonna do <laughs> is we're gonna cook it over rocks at 400 degrees and then we're going to make a, a light water broth. And I was like, wow, you got all of that from this recipe? <laughs> like, this was four <laughs> words. Um, it was so fascinating. And then one day during our testing, he was like, oh, I just want to show you this. It's actually not part of the project, but I think it's really cool. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, and it was, it, it was, it's something called vegetarian lungs. Uh, it is a 900-year-old uh, recipe. It comes out of the Buddhist temple uh, tradition, you know, where uh, uh, Buddhism is a vegetarian religion. Uh, the monks were vegetarian, but they needed to get investors. We always, always, every chef always needs an investor. Uh, Even yeah. Buddhist monks. That's right. Uh, you know, they, they needed uh, support from the community. And, but the community uh, the people they needed to get the support from were, you know, very wealthy and were used to having meat. So how were the, the Buddhists going to, you know, wazzle, uh, wow them and, you know, razzle and dazzle them with their food when they couldn't serve meat? So they came up with all these amazing mock meat recipes. Once it's still like uh, stand up to anything that is getting served today. Uh, and one of them was this vegetarian lung recipe. And I... Like I couldn't understand what he was doing, what was going to happen. I started to actually think he was crazy. And then he presented it to me and I tasted it and I looked at it and I was like, this is brilliant. Like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I am going to use this one day. And then about four months later, uh, my partner in Leckeburger uh, called me up and she was like, oh, you know, I want to open this a vegan burger recipe a restaurant and up until then I'd already actually said no to offers like that because I, I couldn't figure out how I was going to make a better vegetarian burger um I didn't I wasn't that impressed with anyone that that any that were on offer you know they were either like really full of soy and really chewy or they were really mushy and just made of beans and, and they didn't hold up you put them in a bun and you know you squish it a little and the burger would sort of like slide out of the bun and you just have the bun left. Um, yeah. And, you know, she said, I want to open this vegan burger recipe. And I was like instantaneously, yes, I have this recipe. We can do this. Like I didn't even hesitate for a second. I was like, 
that vegetarian lung recipe from 900 years ago is going to, you know, save this restaurant. And so what is the base ingredient? It's not lungs, right? It's not. It's not from like a cow that only eats vegetables. Um, (laughs) uh, It's beans and uh, like beans and bean flour, basically, and mushrooms. And then it's it's how you is it fermented or it, it what it, what kind of method how is it because it's cooked in some way or it's not yeah fermented? It, it's cooked but it solidifies uh, so it doesn't fall apart uh, and we're able to grill it which I think is actually what sets us apart from most uh, most vegetarian burgers because unless you're one of those soy burgers uh, that you know more like hockey pucks those you can put on a grill but the bean burgers you can't and even if you can't actually even put, I don't think, I know you can't put the Beyond Burger on the grill, although now that I'm saying this, they're probably going to be like, oh, we have to figure out how we can get the burger on the grill. And the Impossible Burger, they don't hold together. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure, I really, I'm sure now that they're working on something. Ours, you can, it folds together and you can put it on the grill. And that I didn't is sort realize. of really unique. And that, and then that gives you the different flavor from the ability to cook it on a grill. Yeah, I mean, that's that, you know, delicious, smoky, charcoal flavor. And I didn't know that about an Impossible Burger. How is it? Does it have to be steamed to hold together? Is that how are they? Cooking? No, I think it's the way the. You, I mean, you cook it in a pan, and it just it. But it, it's it's a little fragile. Like I, things that you put on the grill have to have a lot of uh, stability. Oh, I see what you mean. So it doesn't fall through. So you can pan fry an Impossible Burger. Yeah. But if you put it on a widely distanced charcoal grill, it won't. Yeah. It'll, exactly. I mean, I haven't. I mean, I know you have to be very delicate in the pan, so it would be and, too hard. And I'm really struck by, it, well, I'm just curious your perspective as someone who's moved into this area, this idea of, I'm not a very big fan of like m- making fake anything. So I'm kind of like, if you want to eat vegetables, great, eat really good vegetables. If you don't want to eat meat, don't. But it's like this huge arena of like, well, we have to, no one's going to stop eating burgers. Everybody, the world needs burgers, so we need substitute burgers. Is 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 that really the key to our future of like basically getting people to not change their eating habits, I guess, with but with something different inserted that they might not notice the difference? I'm still kind of stuck on this of like, is this really the way to go? What's your point of view on that? Um, I think it is the way to go. I mean, I think that, it, you know, if, if I was a regular meat eater, I have to have four burgers a month. I just crave that flavor. Maybe I would be like, you know what? I can have two of the Impossible Burgers and two of regular burgers, and, and that would actually make a huge difference. Uh, so I, I hope it is the way of the future. And I'm just going to go back and uh, comment on something you said. The, it, for so long, uh sort of that mock meat tradition has been derided. Like people don't take it seriously. Uh, But a lot of people don't eat uh, meat because they actually, like if I don't eat meat because I care about the environment, why why would I then deny myself the flavors of a burger? It's delicious. I don't like meat. I don't eat meat because I actually don't like it. So yes, I'll try it now. I eat fish every once in a while, but my reality is I actually don't like meat. That's why I don't eat it. So for me, mock meat isn't this great thing because why would I want to replace something I don't like? But for a lot of people, they actually really love the taste of meat and chicken and fish, but they've given it up for some really good reasons. 
And so they shouldn't be punished for that for just eating vegetables. They should still have the whole range of flavors that are available to meat eaters in, you know, those textures. And there's only so many flavors and textures in the world, right? Uh, yeah. Even, you know, 900 years later, I'm still using the same recipe <laughs> that somebody yeah. was using 900 years ago. Like, we're not that good at inventing new foods. And so, you know, the... Um, you know, you want those flavors. They're delicious. So why should you be denied those flavors and textures just because of your views? Like, it, oh, yeah, I, I, I think it's, we all have to change how we think about this because for years, the the narrative has been like, oh, why mock meat? When it actually has this amazing tradition where it started and where it's going is actually seems to be the wave of the future. No, I well, I think that's really helpful and and fascinating. I appreciate uh, you calling me out on that because I still I'm still a little stuck though because I'll ask you this follow up question, which is: Do you think though people have that taste for meat and 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 especially someone who's moved countries where the meat tastes really different because of how it's raised and I would say to my palate not in a good way is. The flip side of that, though, is if we're raising people on less meat-centric diets, will they even have that craving or tendency? Maybe it's just because if you've been raised on having, as you said, meat at the center of the plate three, you know, at least twice a day, that's. But you know, is the model to carry that on, or is it just temporary? Or do you think there's something kind of that maybe the majority of human beings will still have that craving, if you will? I think so, because it's delicious. So why, why wouldn't you crave it? And there's lots of cultures where meat isn't the center of the plate. Meat is really reserved for more special occasions. Um, and, you know, I, that's, I think that's the better way to eat it. Uh, but they still crave it. They still think it's delicious when they have a chance to eat it. Um, they just don't necessarily eat it every single day. And, and really, I mean, those flavors are amazing and the texture it, it's for as much as i love my vegetables um, and i hope none of them are listening right now you know <laughs> <laughs> close your ears that's vegetables. right uh you know chicken and fish and beef and all the other kinds of meat that's out there they have different sort of textural properties that vegetables are never going to have um and they have different layers of flavor and the fat that's sort of inherently within them it makes for a really exciting uh, moment in your mouth. And with vegetables, you have to work really hard at it. Uh, they, uh, you know, they don't sort of, a naked vegetable, well, I think it's delicious, isn't necessarily the most exciting thing in the world. And, and so certainly at Dirt Candy, we, you know, we, we do a lot to them uh, to make them seem as exciting as a piece of meat. And part of what we're doing is trying to mimic uh, some of what meat gives you. So, you know, meat can be chewy and crispy and fatty and um, I don't think of other things, juicy. And so, you know, when we do give you a plate of carrots, we're going to probably give you a crispy carrot and we're going to give you a lot of fat. So, you know, uh, it feels really rich in your mouth and we're probably going to give you something that is a little juicy. And, and so you, we're, we're trying to mimic that flavor with it and something that's like, dehydrated so it's chewy and all of that is going to give you the same thing as meat but i also have a staff of you know 20 people in my kitchen who can do this all day long yes 
No. And well, and that, and that is, you can do amazing things, but it takes t- time and, and talent and ideas. And, um, but that, that was really interesting. Thank you for sharing with that. Okay. After the break, we're going to hear Amanda's Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about the vegetable, non-vegetable substitute arguments and also share your ideas for future guests. Are you into wine? It's not too late to sign up for El Buena Quipo. It takes a village to make great Santa Barbara wine, hear directly from those who grow the grapes and manage the vineyards which produce the globally renowned Santa Barbara vintages. This virtual event will be hosted by Matt Ketman, an editor at Wine Enthusiast and the Santa Barbara Independent. It's free, and you can watch from wherever you'll be on May 21st. Hurry to sbce.events to register. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Amanda, what's your Julia Moment? Well... I was one of those little kids who like loved food television. <laughs> like that was my jam. I loved watching cooking shows. And so um, for me, I grew up with her. <laughs> I grew up with her voice. Um, and I would watch her like every day or as much as I could. And when I think back on it, what she really taught me was that women can cook and that women can do extraordinary things with food and they can make it seem really, really fun, uh, which is not something that you saw on television. You know, cooking shows were pretty serious. Uh, and Julia's show just was sort of brilliant and she was funny and she laughed and she didn't take it too seriously and, and she made mistakes. And that is how every day I try to run my kitchen. I try to make sure we have fun. We don't take anything too, too seriously. It's just dinner after all. And uh, I think I always, you know, that comes from her. That's so great. I think that's so true. And that Julia, I mean, it's it's kind of like you take, you don't want things to be too seriously. and But you also take fun in the kitchen seriously and you take food seriously. So it's like a sort of like constant back and forth so that you're not ever out of balance, I guess. That's right. She taught me to be messy and how to clean up. Like she was brilliant. That's so great. And I, and I love that, you know, you have said you really endorse this idea that food and cooking and should be fun, but that you also are a strong and passionate advocate for things should be more equitable and fair. And um, I think Julia would be very proud. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. So for more on The Veg... And the latest from Chef Amanda Cohen, you can go to DirtCandyNYC.com. It's at DirtCandyNYC on Facebook and Instagram and at DirtCandy on Twitter. At the same time, don't forget to follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. 
It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. For the latest on this year's Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads are available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.